How do we break a tie? You know, a tie like when teams play and they have an equal score at the end of the game or time has expired or how do we break a tie when there's no clear winner? How do we break a tie when we have competing things in our lives? Somebody wants us to do this and somebody else wants us to do that. Well, in sports, there's always a mechanism for breaking a tie. In baseball, you just play until the tie is resolved. One team scores more runs and they win. So there's no real tiebreaker mechanism. You just play it out. On the other hand, in football, there is a clear tie-breaking mechanism. It's different depending upon the league you're in, the level of the sport, but there's a mechanism for that. And occasionally in some situations, they will end in a tie. I know in the NFL, and I don't know much about it, but I know in the NFL, there's been a lot of uh, controversy and conversation about how to break a tie, especially when it comes to playoff games. But we're talking about things more important than a baseball game or a football game. When it comes to competing Christian values, you know, when those values come at us and we have to decide often between two what we consider good things, how do we decide? Now, people think that, that Christian faith should be without controversy or difficulty, that we should just be able to decide these things, but it's not always that simple. Jesus even said in Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 49 from the message, I've come to start a fire on this earth. How I wish it were blazing right now. I've come to change everything, turn everything right side up. How I long for it to be finished. Do you think I came to smooth things over and make everything nice? Not so. I've come to disrupt and confront. From now on, when you find five in a house, it will be three against two or two against three. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against bride and bride against mother-in-law. Well, you see, there are times when things will not be easy and there will be competing values. And Jesus kind of spells it out there. It might even be uncomfortable because there'll be people that'll take sides and it'll be difficult to, to resolve because sons and fathers will disagree and mothers and daughters. And certainly <laughs> all of us with our in-laws from time to time, I suppose. So how do we choose? There will be times we have to choose between competing values, and they're both good. Well, we want to talk about that today on Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. It's the place where we challenge each other to grow in God's direction. It's the place where we understand faith to be absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we try to help each other develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, what I mean by absolute confidence, and yes, I'll own this definition, nobody else needs to take responsibility for it, it's, it's mine for all that it helps and all that it doesn't say the complete story about faith, I understand that, but let's think about it. Absolute confidence means that we have no doubt, no hesitation to believe what God says and put it into practice. Absolute confidence means we just will do what God says right up front because we are convinced that God is trustworthy. 
that we can trust God to do what he says and to be who he is. So faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, again, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We have a great church with a lot of great people and a lot of real enthusiasm for important things and a desire to understand the Bible, a real concern for our times when people don't seem to be interested in understanding the Bible. They seem to want their own way. But we're determined to not ask God to be on our side, but we're determined to be on God's side. And in just a moment, we're going to get into this question that I raised about how to break a tie, because I think there's a Bible story that gives us some insights on that. I'm not going to tell you it's always easy. And some of us want to solve our conflicts by keeping everybody happy. And Jesus says you clear, clearly cannot. So we're going to have to think about how do we make our decisions, knowing someone's going to think we made the wrong decision, but we need to find a way to make sure that when we have to choose, that God is pleased with our decisions. That's the important part. But before we get into all that, I want to circle back to some things that I've been thinking about lately, and, and, and part of it's in light of the things that our country is going through. Part of it's in light of the recent holiday when we celebrated our independence and remind ourselves of important things. And, and I hear a talk about liberty and freedom, and I hear people advocating for it and standing up for it. But every now and then I will hear someone say, well, liberty is God's idea. After all, it started with God. And I find other people that want to say, really? Are you sure it was God's idea? As though maybe it's not God's idea. You see, every now and then I get a whiff from church leaders of one kind or another, and I'm not identifying any of them. I can't remember any specific examples at this moment. That's not important. The important thing is this idea is creeping into conversation among influential Christians, and we need to think about this so we don't just swallow what somebody is telling us. We need to be careful to evaluate all kinds of ideas. So I want to talk about that a little bit. And yes, I'm convinced that liberty was and is God's idea. You know, when you contrast liberty to tyranny, then it's pretty easy to think that God would not be supportive of a tyrant. Yes, we know that God has allowed tyrants to rule countries, but we're not talking about whether God has allowed it to happen for whatever reason. We're talking about, is God really the author of liberty, the author of freedom as we understand it? And as I said, yes, I believe he is. But among the Christians' conversation that I hear occasionally is this idea that, that who do we think we are as Americans thinking we should have liberty when other people in the history of the world haven't had, and even other Christians have lived under terrible tyrannies, and even today, Christians live under terrible tyrannies. So who do we think we are that we should be and they don't say it this way, but this is kind of the way I hear it. Who do we think we are to be entitled to liberty? Now, please understand, I don't at all want to advocate that we are entitled to liberty. Not at all. We are humble before God, and God has been gracious to give us the gift of liberty in our country. And so we should be grateful that God has given us that gift. It's not something to be taken for granted, but it is something that comes from God. 
And I want us help want to help us think about that a little bit and, and a little bit of a potential rationale for that. So think with me, go back to the Bible. And there is a story in the Bible that I think is the quintessential Old Testament story of salvation. It's the salvation story of the Old Testament, if you will. Set the stage. Israel has been in captive in captive uh, captivity to Egypt. They've lived in the land a long time. By moving there, it saved their lives. But now things have changed, and they are slaves in that land, captive to the Pharaoh. They have no means of escape, no hope of escape, and they are just managing to get by as captives in that land. Well, along comes God and says to Moses, and yes, I know there's more to the story of Moses than that I'm talking about right now, but let's just pick it up where God comes to Moses at the burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to go down to Egypt, and I want you to lead my people out of there. It's time for them to be liberated from slavery. Now, he didn't say it in those words, but that was what's going on. Specifically, God had a very important purpose for them to leave Israel. And he recruited Moses over Moses' robust objections. Go read the story. It continues to amaze me that Moses was so forthright to, to argue with God that he didn't want to do it. But God said, yep, go do it. And so Moses did. Moses went to Egypt, and he had an audience with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt. What Pharaoh said went. He was an ultimate power broker. I mean, he didn't have to ask permission from anybody to order anything. So Moses gets an audience with Pharaoh and says to Pharaoh that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, had ordered Pharaoh to let his people go, and Pharaoh didn't take that well. Well, you know the rest of the story. It involved plagues and a lot of other things, but, but don't miss this part of it that I didn't mention. See, Moses said to Pharaoh that God wants you to let his people go so they may worship him. So it was God's idea for people to be liberated from slavery. God didn't like that idea. He didn't want his people in slavery. And still today, no Christians that I know of advocate for slavery. And yet they have trouble equating the concept of servitude or slavery to the concept of tyranny by a government. We shouldn't miss that, okay? Let's not miss that governments can be tyrannical and enslave people. That, that's clear in modern history. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God has instructed you to let his people go so that they can worship him. Well, Pharaoh didn't like the idea, but God persisted. Now, the important thing is that God did win, and the other important thing is the reason that God wanted his people to go. You see, God's idea was for them to be liberated, to be free of slavery, and the reason for that was so that they could worship him. I think that's extraordinary. I think that should not be missed. So God gets his people out of Egypt, and they gather at Sinai so they can worship him. They have some trouble. Yeah, no doubt about it, something about a golden calf, if you want to go back and read that. But ultimately, they come to understand who God is and their responsibility to worship him. So you see, God had the idea that they should be free of Pharaoh so that they could worship him freely, make sacrifices to him. See, I think that Christians today 
misunderstand both the idea of tyranny and the concept of slavery. And, and they, they tend to say, well, what I think are really unwise, you could even say silly things like, who are we to think we should be exempt from hardship and slavery and tyranny and persecution and all of that, as though that's something to be sought. You know, that's not the way the Bible treats it. God treats it as something from which he wants to deliver people. To be sure, many faithful followers of Jesus went through horrible things. Read chapter 11 of Hebrews if you want to get a little glimpse of that. But he also acknowledged that people needed to have faith to honor him. And clearly from the salvation story, as I've called it from the Old Testament, the story of Exodus, God wanted his people to be free. And so when Christians fail to defend their God-given rights, they risk losing them. And see, in this country, in the United States of America, we have absolute legal foundation to stand on to say our rights come from God because our Declaration of Independence says that. And so we should stand up for those rights, both because they are a gift of God and because our nation's legal system gives us that opportunity, and not only opportunity, but has established that as a principle that we have all agreed to live by, by virtue of our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. The other thing that too many Christians lose sight of, I guess they think it's somehow uh, holy, somehow righteous to suffer, but they, they forget that not only when they lose their rights, will they probably lose the opportunity to practice their faith. That's what happens in the history of tyranny. Look at the history of, of Russia, look at the history of Southeast Asia, North Korea today, China today. People lose their opportunity to practice their faith freely, and at the same time then, Christians lose the opportunity to share the message of the Bible. And we hear people say how important it is to do that, and it is. Nobody denies that. But they fail to connect standing up for religious liberty in our day and in our time is really a sacred responsibility because failure to stand up for that which God has given us by virtue of this country, fail to stand up for it could very well result in losing more than they realize. Because one of the first things that goes will be their ability to practice their faith. And we've seen that come under fire in this country already in various ways. Many lawsuits have been filed just because people wanted to stop someone from a religious practice. So just a few thoughts to make sure we don't totally throw our opportunities out because we really risk losing so much if we don't stand up for our religious liberties. And I think that we, we as, as Christians, we as Americans need to do that for ourselves and for our futures. We don't want to risk losing what God has given us uh, by any means at all, by any, any stretch of the imagination. We don't want to lose that. And we need to realize how precious a gift it is and act on that. So uh, keep that in mind, and I'll ring the bell again for all of Christians who need to vote. Keep that in mind as you're thinking about your voting responsibilities in this primary season. And in Florida, where I live, primary is next month. And so we're going to be electing some people at the primary. It's just the way the law works and the typical pattern of voting. So if you have a primary in your state, wherever you are, if you're in Florida, someplace else, 
make sure you get registered to vote. And the time is running out, by the way, check in your state to see when you have to be registered by it's July 25th in Florida. Make sure you get registered and make sure you vote. Check on the candidates. See if they, first of all, stand up for liberty. And specifically, do they stand up for religious freedom, religious liberty, so that you can practice your faith without worry, without threat, without risk, and then share that message with the people around you. If we lose it, it'll be really difficult to get it back. And you and I, we do not want to be responsible for losing it and sending that burden to our children and our grandchildren. So here we are. We're going to stand up for that with that which is right. Yes? Yes. All right, let's try to answer this question that I started with. How do we break a tie in our lives? And there will always be that. I'm not trying to say that it's always simple. I wouldn't try to tell you a bunch of hypothetical things that, that you would then have to choose because I've said that that way. Yeah, we could talk specifically, but in this format, I'm, I'm reluctant to do that because we don't have a chance to exchange ideas. And all you would hear is, is my idea. And some of these things need to be worked out in the crucible of our, of our Christian communities, of our churches. And we need to have these conversations with, with each other because I might say something and you might say, yeah, but did you know about this? And well, that might affect the way I would think about that. And yes, God is gracious, but God is not to be fooled. So we do have to make good decisions. You know, some people sometimes want to want to say, well, I'll just take my chances with God on this one. Um, um, that sounds really dangerous to me. I don't think you want to do that. I don't think you want to take a chance on that because God is not to be trifled with. God is not trivial. God is not at all someone that you want to take your chances with. Yes, he's gracious, but we don't want to presume on that grace. Yes, he's kind, but we don't presume on his kindness. No, not even close. So let's take a look. There's a really a quite short story in the Gospel of Luke that gives us some real insight into this idea of how do we make our decisions when we have to break a tie on something that's very important to us. So we're looking at the story of Jesus visiting Mary and Martha, or Martha and Mary as they appear in the story. So let me read. I'm going to read again from the Common English Bible. It's a good translation. You find a translation that you will read and understand. Always start there. If you get more involved in it, there may be other translations that would help you more, but always start with one that you will read and that you do understand. That matters because if you won't read it and you don't understand it, you can't get any benefit out of it. And by the way, I should quickly add, if reading is difficult for you or you don't enjoy it, there are many opportunities to listen to the Bible on a re in a recorded format. That counts too. Don't ever minimize that. You can listen to an audible Bible and benefit from that as well. Okay, back to Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 38. While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. By contrast, Martha was preoccupied with getting everything ready for their meal. So Martha came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. 
One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. It won't be taken away from her. And that's the end of the chapter. That's through verse 42. So what's going on here in this rather straightforward story? Uh, many people have have really strong feelings about this story because they, uh, uh, they, they identify with either Martha and Mary, and particularly if your name is Martha or your name is Mary, then you would really identify it. Uh, I've often found it both amusing and uh, a little curious because I really didn't know what to do with it. Still not totally sure what to do with it. But people whose name is Martha often feel like this story is told against them just because they share a common name. Well, if your name is Martha, you shouldn't feel that way at all. This is not you and you are not her. So to resist that, but at the same time, I know my mother's name was Martha and she expressed from time to time a little um, unsettled feeling about this story. And it came, I think, because she shared the name with the one of the leading characters in the story, nothing more, nothing less than that. But if you're, if you're a Mary or a Martha and you have feelings for this story based on that, take heart. I think we're going to look at this so differently today that, that you'll think differently about it from here on out. And I'm not doing that just because I want you to feel better. Uh, I'm sure when I approach this story, I can't help thinking about my mother's trepidation about it. And I can't help wondering was the story really meant to blast everybody named Martha? Well, it wasn't, and I'm pretty sure she knew that. But nonetheless, a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers have a tendency to be hard on Martha and easy on Mary. And one of the things I want us to ask as we look at this, and you can think about this as we go along, is, is that really appropriate? Is it really appropriate to make Mary in this story the good girl and Martha the bad girl? What's really going on here that we can understand better so that we don't get ourselves tied in, in knots trying to understand or jump to conclusions that really aren't, aren't appropriate based upon our understanding of what's going on and the setting of the story. So we, we begin at the beginning, of course, of the story, and it says that Jesus and his disciples were traveling, and they were on their way, as we know from the context, they were on their way to Jerusalem. That was over overall big picture idea is that Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem because that's where he needs to be for the passion story to unfold. He goes there to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We're not to that yet, but this is part of the, of the journey in that direction. And so they stop in this village where Mary and Martha live, and you probably also know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were siblings. They lived in this village. Now, we don't know why Lazarus isn't mentioned here. Luke doesn't explain that. He's not mentioned at all in the story. It just says they stopped at Martha's house, Mary's house, and doesn't mention Lazarus. We know because of the setting, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that the town was Bethany. So we know it's not very far from Jerusalem, really just up over the hill a couple of miles, and you're at Jerusalem going from Bethany to Jerusalem, you'd go up the hill and you'd see Jerusalem from the top of what we call the Mount of Olives. And then you would travel down that far side of that mount to the city of Jerusalem, down the, down the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley and into the city proper. So it's not very far away. You could visit easily in a day. You could walk to Jerusalem 
and conduct your business or visit or whatever you needed, and then turn around and walk home at night. So Bethany's that close to Jerusalem as part of Jesus' travels toward Jerusalem. And I don't think we want to get lost in the detail of that for right now. I just want to give you the, the context of where he is and what's going on. And so Jesus was teaching the people, and Martha was the one that welcomed him. So we know from the story Jesus was teaching, but before we get to the teaching part, which is often the focus, and it's important to think about, we want to recognize that, that when he arrived there, Martha welcomed him as a guest. So that's very significant. Martha was right there out front as the householder, maybe the matron of the house. We don't know. It's not that specifically identified, but she was the older sister, and she would have been a person of a little more status based upon that. So, so she did what was expected of someone who had responsibility for the household. She welcomed a guest, and that was very important because you were expected to welcome guests in those days. They didn't have motels and hotels to stay in, so they depended upon the hospitality of the people along the way. And so she was doing what she needed to do to make Jesus welcome. Martha, it says in the story, received them as a guest, received Jesus as a guest, and by virtue of receiving him, received the other people that were traveling with him. Now, it also tells us, and, and the action is very compressed here, very compressed, that Martha's sister Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his message. So Mary was sitting and listening to Jesus, and at the same time, Martha was preoccupied with all the other tasks, getting ready, it says in the text, for their meal. Now, this is not particularly surprising. It would have been the responsibility of the ladies of the household to take care of that, and the hospitality obligations would have meant they needed to do that. So Martha is doing exactly what everyone would be expected to do in that time. Her conduct is not at all unusual. It's Mary's conduct that's unusual. Mary is sitting listening to Jesus as though she were a disciple of Jesus. Now we say, well, so why not? Well, the reason is because in those days, her behavior would have shocked most Jewish men because she was putting herself in the cultural context in a place she didn't belong, because women were not expected, not allowed even, to sit like that with the men because the men were the ones who listened to the teaching and the women did not. So it would have been quite a, quite a shocking thing. So while Mary's, do, while Mary's doing her rather unusual thing, or maybe we should say shocking thing, Martha is preparing the meal, is taking care of the hospitality obligations. Now, it's possible. We can't tell this for sure from the story, but Martha may have been trying to listen as well, but she kept being pulled away. You know, it says that she was uh, getting ready, and so she, she was uh, preoccupied with that. So could it be that she was trying to listen, but maybe some of the other people in the household kept coming and asking her questions, or she needed to give direction, and she was pulled away from what she wanted to do by the preparations, because that was her obligation as the hostess. Well, you can imagine that even in those days, sisters disagreed. And so Martha goes in and says to Jesus, hey, 
you need to straighten this situation out. It's not fair that I'm doing all the work. And Mary gets to sit here and listen. She had an expectation that they would share the responsibilities. Well, that was completely legitimate too. She would have had a normal expectation that they would share the responsibilities. That was what people did in those days. Really, that's what happens today a lot of times. And, and whether for good or for bad, I mean, it's just the way it is. Certain people take on certain responsibilities. And so often the sisters would work together as sisters might work together today in a kitchen preparing a meal. They'd be talking and enjoying each other's company while they're working to get that done. And they do that because that's what they want to do. That's what they like to do. They find that that's their responsibility in the household and they embrace it fully. They don't have any reluctance to do that. Well, more than reluctance, Martha's concerned that she's being tasked with all the work and Mary's getting away with something. So she goes to Jesus and she says, would you straighten Mary out because she's not doing what she's supposed to do it. You know, I know everybody here knows she's supposed to be helping me, but she's not. And so they asked Jesus to solve the problem, uh, resolve the conflict, choose a side, all of those things we could say. And what does Jesus say? Well, what does Jesus say is what we're going to talk about when we get back in just a minute because Jesus doesn't always resolve conflicts the way we think he should. Um, surprise, surprise, Jesus doesn't feel obligated to do what we think he should do. He does what's right. And so you stay with us. You, we'll take a little break, take a breath, read the story again. And in just a few minutes, we'll come back and we'll take a look at what Jesus says and what might have been going on that we tend to miss. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Be back in a minute. It's summertime. Ready for your vacation to the beach, the lake, or the mountains? But what about your accommodations? Ever wonder what germs were left behind by the previous guests? Kathy G. from Tulsa says the Genesis Fogger gives her peace of mind and confidence when traveling. With Genesis, she knows that the air and surfaces in her vacation rental are free of bacteria and viruses left behind by the previous occupants. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off any order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best, freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Well, we're back. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We've been talking about the story that Luke tells us about Mary and Martha and Jesus' visit in their household and how Jesus is going to solve the conflict, or at least that's what Martha wants him to do. Martha seems to want him to put Mary in her place, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But before we do, a couple of housekeeping things. I don't want to do this often, but I probably don't do it often enough. But I want to encourage you, if you find value in this program, you know my church, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, we do this in an attempt to help you. We don't do this just because we want to be able to say we do it. We do it because we hope it has value to you. And if you find that it's valuable, and if you find some some ideas that that come right out of the Bible and, and resonate with you, if, if you wouldn't mind, share the ideas and share the podcast or the broadcast, however you listen to it, with your friends. And uh, you can share it with your enemies, too, if you want. I think it might do them some good as well. But uh, uh, don't hesitate to share that. I don't like to I'm not a very good promoter of these kinds of things, but I think you understand. We're just trying to help people get a good understanding of what God is talking about. And we do do our best to give you a good interpretation of what the Bible is saying so that we can understand it in our day and our time. So if you wouldn't mind doing that, I'd appreciate that a lot. And while you're doing that, take a look at the other programs on this network, America Out Loud. I think you'll find value in some of the other ones. They might interest you. And you might be surprised at the perspective you hear and the usefulness of that. So don't don't hold back. Recommend it to your friends. They sometimes need to hear things like you hear, and you may assume they hear it and know it. No, they may not. So reach out to them and encourage them to, to give a listen. And, and I thank you very much. The other thing I should be honest with you and let you know how much I appreciate you listening. So I guess I feel a little obligation for you to know where we're going in the next couple of weeks. Well, I guess everywhere across the country, it's vacation time. And yes, I'm going to take a little vacation break, visit some family, take a ride, walk on some trails in the Smoky Mountains and have a refreshing time. I'm looking forward to it. So the next couple of, I guess, next three weeks, we're going to have Encore, uh, uh, what should I say, Encore shows, I guess. Some people want to call them the best of. I have no idea if these are the best of. I just tried to pick out some I thought you'd find helpful and interesting and worth listening to again. So I hope you'll enjoy those for the next few weeks and we'll be back with some new things. And maybe I can give you a little report on seeing a bear in the Smoky Mountains. I I don't know. Don't really expect to see one, but uh, they might see me. I'm really hoping to see some elk because there's a lot of elk there. But anyway, I'm getting off the subject. Let's get back to, to Luke's story because we want to make sure we come to grips with that and understand it. So we left it where the problem kind of surfaces between Martha and Mary, Martha doing the work and Mary listening to Jesus and Martha thinking that Mary needs to help out with the work. And Martha goes to Jesus and, and wants him to fix it out. And, and so Jesus says that Martha's worried about all these details. And there were details for, to be sure the, the arrival of Jesus and the disciples likely created a lot of work for the household. They were expected to have a meal. It would have been a fairly large meal. 
Um, no question about that. With Jesus and 12 disciples, and maybe others that traveled with him, likely others that traveled with him. So it would have been a very disrupting arrival. They wouldn't have known to plan for him. He just shows up and they get to work providing for his needs. That's what they did in those days. Well, Jesus, instead of setting one of them straight, gently says that there's really one thing that's worth being concerned about. And Mary has found it, and it won't be taken away from her. Well, Mary has found that the truth that Jesus teach, teaches then and now won't be taken away. And so his, his reply is really quite striking because it changes the cultural expectations of women as disciples, because as we said earlier, Mary was inserting herself as though she was a male disciple. And that was pretty striking, but Jesus seems to think that's okay. And he gently reminds Mary that you really don't have to worry about all the rest of the stuff, which would be quite difficult for her to comprehend, probably, because hospitality was so important in those days. And, and Martha may well have wondered, what you might mean I shouldn't keep my hospitality responsibilities? Isn't that important? And Jesus nowhere nowhere says to Martha that that's not important. All Jesus is doing here is pointing out perspective that the truth that Jesus teaches is so much more significant, and paying attention to him will not be taken away. So how do we, how do we put all of this in perspective? Now, one of the things I think is helpful is that we realize that this story comes right after the story of the Good Samaritan. So last week we talked about the Good Samaritan. We talked about the importance of loving one's neighbor and that that's what the Good Samaritan did. Jesus said, taught us that the Samaritan was the good neighbor because the Samaritan showed mercy to the man who had been attacked. That was an important lesson. It was, in, it was framed in the context of what they call, and we still call the Shema, where it essentially says, love God and love your neighbor. That sums up the whole law. And so that story taught an expert in the law that loving one's neighbor meant showing compassion when you came upon a neighbor that needed your compassion. So it really explained part two of that love God, love your neighbor. Well, if you think about that in the context, then this story, not a parable, a true story, an, an occasion, and Luke tells us right after the other one, could it be that what we're looking at here is Jesus carefully and correctly and gently without intending shame to anyone is trying to explain that, yes, love for neighbor is important and hospitality things are important, but could he be saying that if you have to break the tie on something else that's really good, faithfulness to him and to his word is more significant. So if the first parable, the only parable we've looked at for the last two weeks, the, the Good Samaritan parable, if that talks about our, our horizontal relationship with our neighbor, could it be that the story of Martha and Mary and their contrasting concerns point to our vertical responsibilities, our vertical relationship, or our love for God? 
See, there's no question that Martha carried out the hospitality duties for that were expected for a neighbor that shows up at their door. Now, you and I understand hospitality, but we don't quite get it the way they did in those days or even today. And, and I think it's important for us to, to think about hospitality in a different context. So a couple of things I came across, and they come from a missionary who had been a missionary in the, in the Middle East and had gotten acquainted with the culture there. And much of his writing has helped us understand that, that what we read in the Bible took place in a very similar cultural context. And this business of hospitality is one of those things that we, we don't understand quite the way they do. So he was telling a story about a, a boy, Rami, a close friend of his that grew up in Syria. And the missionary noticed that Rami was always very hospitable. He was quick to invite people in. He was quick to offer them coffee to drink. He was the one that went out of his way to make sure they were welcome. And so one day the missionary asked his friend Rami, how did you learn to be so hospitable? Because it wasn't something the missionary had seen in this country, but he had seen it there. And so Rami told the story of how he was a young boy when a neighbor knocked at the door one day asking for his father. Well, Rami explained that everyone was out and they were doing things, they weren't home, and that he'd tell his father when his father came home that you stopped by to visit. That was the end of the conversation. Sounds perfectly normal to us. Sounds like something we might do. Well, as promised, when his father got home, Rami told his father about the neighborhood come by, and, and his father's response was this, why did he leave already? Did you offer him more coffee? And, and Rami replied to his father, said, well, I didn't offer him any coffee. And his father replied, and, and giving real important instruction to Rami, if any neighbors come to visit, you should always compel them in to have coffee. Now notice what it says, compel them in. That was the way his father looked at hospitality. It wasn't just to be polite at the door. It wasn't just to offer them coffee, but to compel them in to have coffee. In other words, what he was saying was to be a member of their tribe meant to be hospitable. Now, we don't think that way much at all. Now, sometimes we might with really good friends, but just because a neighbor from down the street stops by, we wouldn't think of it that way. But hospitality in that village in Syria, as Rami learned, was very different and what much more was expected. Similarly, we can think the same way about the story of Jesus arriving at the home of Mary and Martha. Hospitality was expected. Another story, the same missionary talked about how he had a, a Jordanian friend, Hassan, and Hassan would say to the missionary, to be Jordanian is to be hospitable. Uh, the missionary thought that was interesting, but the missionary said, as in telling the story, said that, that he could have easily said, to be hospitable is to be Jordanian. So see, there's a similar concept of hospitality here from the story of Rami to this one, the obligation to be hospitable. Well, the missionary, having lived there and, and learned some of these things, was particularly hospitable on one occasion. And Hassan, his friend, the, the Jordanian friend, Hassan's mother noticed it and said to him, you are Jordanian. 
you are Jordanian. How about that? Well, that didn't mean that he was suddenly a part of that tribe or that country. It meant that he displayed the hospitality that reflected their value of hospitality. He was, in that sense, Jordanian. So you get the idea that hospitality was a deeply considered obligation. Well, similarly, we see things like this in the New Testament, where we get the idea that that hospitality was something that uh, we don't think of the same way, same word, but they think of it quite differently. Well, you may remember the story of Paul visiting Lydia's hometown. So Paul shows up, he speaks in the square, and is well received by the people, and, and Lydia invites him to her house. Now, we might think that's a little unusual because a stranger inviting someone to their house, uh, particularly a lady inviting a man to their house, uh, what's going on here? Well, this was not at all unusual in those days because that's what people did. That was part of hospitality, and a little more than that. We know that in those days, there were many itinerant philosophers that they would travel back and forth and around the roads in the Roman Empire. And so for a philosopher to show up in town wasn't unusual. For Paul to speak in the city's market, in the city square, wasn't unusual at all. It, it would not have been uncommon. That's what happened. That's what people did. And he might not have been the only speaker that day. There could have been a number of speakers because they came and they went and they spoke in the city square. Well, if you were impressed by one of these, then you often invited that person into your home. So Lydia, apparently being impressed by Paul, invited Paul to her home. Now, it was a, a hospitality act, but it was also an honor. She honored Paul by inviting him in. And because Paul was honored by that invitation, he would then be expected to reciprocate her kindness, her hospitality, by speaking at one or more dinner parties that she might throw for her friends and acquaintances. And so the hospitality worked both ways and the honor worked both ways. It wasn't demeaning for Paul to be expected to do that. It was an honor for him to be welcomed into her home. And it was an honor them for him to speak to the people that gathered because that's the way the world worked in that time and in that place. So our concept of hospitality, while we certainly want to welcome people, it's not the same as what they did and, and not at all the obligation that they might have felt. So considering these two stories being back-to-back, -back, one a parable, one a true story, the one of the Good Samaritan clearly talking about love for neighbor, and now this one points out love for God. So Mary carried out, or I'm sorry, Martha carried out all of the hospitality expectations. She gave due diligence to doing them. While she was doing that, Mary was listening to Jesus, and there's where the trouble shows up. It wasn't that one was doing right and the other, and one was doing wrong. They were both doing right in a sense, because Martha knew what was right in terms of hospitality. And Mary seems to know what's right in terms of paying attention to Jesus and his teaching. Even though she violated cultural norms by sitting down with the disciples to listen, in spite of that, she thought it was important for her to do that. It's also important to, to think about the story in this way. 
between the two of them, between Martha and Mary, and the way they respond to Jesus, they represented an appropriate representation or reception, I should say, to the message of Jesus. Martha, as the older sister running the household, welcomes Jesus as the mistress of the house. That was her responsibility. Martha, as the younger sister, sits and listens to Jesus. So they do two things, love for Jesus by welcoming him in, love for Jesus by listening to his message. So neighborly thing is hospitality. The love for God is paying attention to what he has to say. And nowhere do we get the sense that Martha didn't pay attention. It's just that she was distracted and would have liked help, maybe so she could have the chance to listen a little bit more. We don't know that. That's just possible. Well, Mary breaks the barrier of the culture, and in doing so, calls attention to the two different and competing values here. So you could say that the way they behaved was showing hospitality to the messenger and hospitality to the message, and both are necessary. So by welcoming Jesus and his disciples into their home, they are welcoming the messenger. That was the appropriate practice of hospitality in those days. And they were delighted to do that. There's no reluctance to do that. They were happy to do that. And Mary, taking the time to listen to Jesus rather than attending to the other duties, showed a level of hospitality to his message that was also important to understand. So I've been thinking about this, and, and here's kind of where I've landed on this and where I want you to think about this. Could it be that Jesus was not so much correcting Martha as teaching all of us that when another good thing competes with the best thing, the best thing should win? See, perhaps Jesus wasn't saying Martha was all right. I'm, I'm sorry, Mary was all right, and Martha was all wrong. Boy, it's great to get those confused, isn't it? Jesus wasn't so much lifting up Mary's behavior and, and scolding Martha as he was helping us understand that when you're, when you're competing for things that have to be done, you need to give attention to that which is the best, and, and he is the best. And I don't think Martha would have disagreed with that. She just couldn't quite resolve how she could do both. And she believed that she had a responsibility to Jesus and to the rest of them to have a meal prepared. She may well have thought, and we don't know this for sure, but she may well have thought, what would happen if I didn't have this meal ready? What would happen if I paid attention to Jesus and wasn't distracted doing these other things? She may have been genuinely concerned that that would have been a cultural faux pas, and she would have failed in her responsibilities to Jesus, and she would have failed to demonstrate love for him. So you see, we're talking about in these two stories the, the idea of how do we love God with all we've got, and how do we love our neighbor as ourself, and how do we resolve these oftentimes competing values? It's not easy, but we have to do it. We come up against those things all the time. There are sometimes work responsibilities that conflict with things. There are sometimes family responsibilities that cause us no small heartburn. Our family wants us to do one thing, and, and we're not so sure because we have a responsibility to God or to, to God's people. And so we wonder, how do I, 
How do I decide this? What do I do? And occasionally we, we choose and we're glad we chose for God first. And occasionally we choose something else and, and we learn from that. You know, that wasn't the wisest of decisions. You know, I'm not here to beat up on you any more than Jesus was there to beat up on Martha. I'm here to say we need to think this through and we need to recognize the words that I started out with where Jesus said it's, it's going to result in conflict. It's not going to be as clear as we'd like it to be. There are going to be times when we have to say yes, because that's the right thing to do out of our loyalty and our allegiance to God. There are times we have to say no to, to, the, to our friends or to our family because we, they need to understand that God comes first, and that's not always an easy thing to, to live with or to deal with, but it's necessary. And so we need to humbly consider that, and I don't think we do anybody any good by bashing Martha and honoring Mary. I think they were both wrestling with it, and I think Jesus, in, in his own careful but, but clear way, is saying, yeah, I know you have these responsibilities, and he didn't bash the concern for those responsibilities, but he did say, when you have that kind of challenge, you need to think about, carefully consider, and then choose wisely what puts God first. So in these two stories, we have a, a real challenging perspective on how to be a neighbor, because that was how the legal expert wrestled with the Good, Good Samaritan story, how to be a neighbor, and then here you have how to be the right person welcoming Jesus into your home, and at the same time, putting the things of God or the Word of God first. That's the challenge for our day, isn't it? As long as we're thinking about that, we need to also make sure we remind ourselves that that's not just true for our personal decisions in life, but it's true for how we approach churches and how we choose churches to attend. I haven't said this for a while, but it's probably time for me to remind everybody that you need to find a church. You need to be a part of that. So many people find church life messy, and it often is, but you know, that's what God uses as a crucible to help us grow. It was a little messy between Mary and Martha here, but it helped them and all of us grow. So if you haven't found a church, look for one, and don't necessarily look for the churches closest to you. You know, we used to do that. We'd look for the churches down the street and because it was convenient. Well, there's nothing wrong with convenience, but I've said now for a while, you don't want to choose the church that's closest to you. You want to choose the church that's closest to the Bible. See, that's the church Mary would have chosen. That's the value Mary would have chosen. It's not that Martha disagreed. She was just distracted. But it's important for us to choose based upon what church is closest to the Bible. And sadly, these days, sometimes, and I've talked to some people a while back who visited our church, and as a result of being in our service, they had made the decision they needed to find a different church because their church, although they had gone for many years, had drifted from the Bible. And it wasn't closest to the Bible anymore. And I'm not urging you to change churches. Don't hear me saying that. What I am urging you to do is to make sure the church you align with is close to the Bible, faithful to the Bible. You see, when push comes to shove, Jesus said it was his words that mattered. We often don't want to leave our friends or maybe our family that attended church, but when we find out that it's not following the Bible, 
or teaching the Bible clearly, then we may need to make a change. And I think we need to be bold and forthright about that. We don't have to be unkind, but we can be clear and say, you know, I want a church that I don't have to worry is going to be drifting off on some tangent that's far from the Bible. I want a church that carefully considers the words of God and helps me understand them and apply them to my life. And if we don't have that, then we won't know how to break the ties in our lives. We won't know how to evaluate those competing values that come up all the time. We won't know how to grow in God's direction by making the best choices. And that's what we want to do. We want to make the best choices. That's what it came down to for Mary and for Martha. That's what Jesus advised. Make the choice that cannot be taken away from you. If we follow teaching that is not consistently aligned with the Bible, we run the risk of disaster. And Jesus says, you can't miss if you pay attention to my words, and if you listen to what I have to say, and if you follow biblical teaching. In order to follow biblical teaching, we have to find a place that honors the Bible, not a place that makes us feel the way we want to or says what we want to hear, a place that follows the Bible. Well, thank you again for listening. It's been such a delight to talk to you, and I'm honored that you even bother to listen to the few things that I have to say. I really do hope they're helpful. I hope the episodes that we're going to be rebroadcasting in the next couple of weeks are helpful, and we're going to take a look at some more of the Bible, and God is going to help us develop absolute confidence in His trustworthiness. See you then.